From VOA, Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Joining me on the program is Senior Managing Editor in VOA's Ukrainian Service, Tatiana Voroshko. Our guest on this edition of the program is a distinguished retired U.S. Army officer who helped expose former President Donald Trump's abuse of power, which led to his first impeachment. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was serving as Director for European Affairs on the U.S. National Security Council when in July 2019, he was present during a phone call between then-President Trump and newly elected Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. An immigrant from Ukraine who is an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was appalled when he overheard former President Trump attempt to extort the newly elected Ukrainian president. Trump suggested that Zelensky investigate then-former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter in exchange for the release of millions of dollars of congressionally mandated foreign aid to Ukraine, which the administration had suspended. Trump apparently wanted to damage Joe Biden, whom he saw as a rival for the 2020 presidency. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman reported Trump's seeming quid pro quo up through his chain of command. His brave actions and subsequent testimony before Congress in October 2019 would lead to Trump's first impeachment for abuse of power. In his recent book, Here, Right Matters, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman chronicles this incident and his life as a young immigrant growing up in Brighton Beach, a Russian enclave in Brooklyn, New York, to his rise through the U.S. Armed Forces. While Vindman's pivotal congressional testimony garnered praise from millions of Americans, it also unleashed vicious attacks on his character and integrity by former President Trump and his allies. In July 2020, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman retired after 21 years in the military. We will talk with him about the themes in his memoir and elicit his analysis about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the geopolitical stakes involved in what is essentially a showdown between autocracy and democracy playing out on Ukrainian soil. And Lieutenant Colonel Vindman joins us via Zoom. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Carol. And thanks, Tatiana. I'm looking forward to having this conversation. I think conversation with VOA Ukraine services is long overdue. For now, Alexander Vindman, I've always wanted to ask you about the title of your book, Here, Right Matters. After all that has befallen you, you know, retribution by Trump officials, your unceremonious removal from the White House, the Trump White House, that is, the impossibility of promotion for speaking the truth. Do you still stand by the title and its implications that here that is in the United States in contrast to authoritarian regimes like Russia, right matters? Well, you know, it's an interesting place to start. I made that statement extemporaneously in response to former Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney's question about why I thought it was appropriate, why it was necessary for me to testify. So I had to reflect on it afterwards because it was a pretty important moment that captured a lot of why I took the actions I did. And what I discovered is was it was a layered notion. It wasn't just simply about the fact that the United States is different and that in the United States, Anybody and everybody is accountable to the law and nobody is above the law. And that a military officer can even report on his commander in chief who's engaged in corruption. It was also here right matter in the context of a series of events, a pivotal moment in American history 
with a U.S. president was looking to set conditions to steal an election by basically fabricating dirt or getting a foreign power to fabricate dirt against his soon-to-be contender, now the president of the United States. And of course, it was extremely relevant to the geopolitics because I think that episode was a seminal moment in Vladimir Putin's views as to the vulnerability of Ukraine and that Ukraine was a viable target to attack, including the use of military force. I think Trump's first impeachment was a key moment there. But it was also right mattered in that moment to me personally, because I felt my values and my obligations as a service member being challenged. I was not going to miss an opportunity to pass an opportunity to live up to my obligation to defend the nation against enemies foreign, which I had done throughout my career, as well as domestic. And I was also mindful of the fact that, you know, my daughter and my family, I'd want to do justice and do right by them and not fall short in that moment when so many other people had. So I think it's on that basis, I guess, on that complex notion, of course, it mattered then, and it still matters today. You know, there are repercussions and consequences for reporting wrongdoing. For any whistleblower, I happened to do it in a way that garnered blanket attention from the U.S. government, from the U.S. public, and parts of the international community. But it still matters today more than maybe even then, because the U.S. is under threat from a major foreign power conducting an illegal, barbarous war against its enemies and the possibility of a spillover in this huge struggle between authoritarianism and democracy and the soul of the 21st century. Thank you so much for that thoughtful answer, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. I have a quick follow-up before I turn to Tatiana. What is your assessment now of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as a wartime leader? Are you surprised at his growth from what one could say was an inexperienced politician, a former comedian and an actor who former President Trump attempted to bribe to what one could arguably call, and one has on one of my former programs, the leader of the free world. So I think the fact is that the seeds of his character were there. He didn't just miraculously manifest to be a uh, national leader and a world leader. I think that he probably at parts in his early presidential tenure was tripped up a little bit by his own inexperience and the limitations that he was told were around him on what he could do with regards to transforming his country. And in the moment of crisis, he rose to the occasion. He is absolutely, and I've said this multiple times, he is not just the leader of Ukraine. He's in fact risen to be the leader of the free world. And through his own force of will and his own competencies, really developed a consensus and developed a community focus on helping Ukraine liberate its territory and push back on authoritarianism. I think if it wasn't him as leader, if it was a different kind of leader from a different era, things would have ended up differently both inside Ukraine and with regards to the international community, its willingness to act against Russia. We were very fortunate. The whole world is very fortunate to have Vladimir Zelensky as the president of Ukraine. And now I'd like to turn to my colleague Tatiana Voroshko for a question. Alexander, what political price, if any, Ukraine has to pay or had to pay for this infamous uh, telephone call in its fight today for survival? It was a significant political price that Ukraine bore, probably even to this day to a certain extent, because the reverberations actually echo through this moment. After this 
quid pro quo, this corrupt scheme to extract a investigation against President Biden, Ukraine uh, was ostracized. It was basically untouchable within the U.S. government for swaths of senior leaders under the Trump administration that were not in any way prepared to challenge the president, even though the national security community repeatedly said that Ukraine was a linchpin to U.S. national security. And I led some of the processes in which we developed policy behind the scenes, substantiating the need to support Ukraine publicly and frankly, even on a bilateral engagement basis, it became untouchable and off limits. That didn't just end with the transition to the Biden administration. The Biden administration also had to deal with this baggage and these kind of false accusations of Hunter Biden corruption and connections with Burisma and the fact that Ukraine was the corrupt state. Ukraine and Zelensky were off limits for the first, I think it was at the seven month mark or maybe even the nine month mark when President Biden finally met with President Zelensky. And then things started to kind of thaw a little bit. But even so, the relationship had lost a huge amount of momentum during the Trump era, where we were pushing really, really hard. The policy community, the national security was pushing really hard to support Ukraine, to make Ukraine too difficult to strike. And momentum was lost even all the way through the Biden administration. So you imagine yourself starting at a much, much lower point in the bilateral relationship when President Biden meets President Zelensky and then ramping up through the months before the war. And then initially a great reluctance for the U.S. to support Ukraine with weapons that it needed to defend itself that only started to kind of ease in the late spring and summer of 2022, quite late into the war. That all started with that phone call, the call itself being the climax of a corrupt scheme that had been unfolding for the preceding months to help President Trump steal the 2020 election. So what was defining moment or defining a reason for the fall in this attitude towards Ukraine? Was it Zelensky? Was it ability to fight? I think Zelensky was absolutely critical. The indomitable spirit of the Ukrainian people fighting against the second most powerful military in the world and holding their ground and liberating territory. And those elements were absolutely critical. But think about it as values and interests. So that satisfied the values proposition for the United States. This was a fight for a country that resembled our own at some point in our history, fighting for its freedoms, fighting against authoritarianism. But there was also a keen interest proposition. And the keen interest proposition was that this was a broader struggle that would define the national security environment for the United States. And in order for the U.S. to have an easier geopolitical environment, Ukraine had to win. Otherwise, there would be other such aspirants, other such aggressors around the world. So it was both the values and the interests that started to thaw the relationship. And we're still, you know, frankly, we're not where I think we need to be. We're still far from the kind of support that Ukraine needs to win. Ukraine can be as successful as we enable it to be. We are the limiting factor. It's not Ukraine or the Ukrainian people. It's the support that we provide that's the limiting factor. Ukraine could liberate all its territory if it gets the support it needs. And I think that thaw is still occurring, and I hope to see over the course of the next months that results in fulsome support to Ukraine and a commitment to reconstruct Ukraine in the long term. 
And last, I'll mention, since I framed out the interest in values being central to the way that U.S. conducts relationships with other countries, you need to have both relationships. This is a central theme in my doctoral dissertation. I just finished up my doctoral dissertation at Johns Hopkins. And this was not consistently present for the U.S. relationship with Ukraine for the preceding 30 years in the bilateral relationship. It's there now. This is the time to seize the moment and to pour all our energies into making sure Ukraine wins. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you are listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guest is retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, Senior Advisor to Vote Vets, a veterans advocacy group and author of the book, Here, Right Matters. I'm Carol Castiel, along with Senior Managing Editor in VOA's Ukrainian Service, Tatiana Voroshko. And this is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol underscore Castiel. Here's a shout out to an all-time loyal listener and Facebook fan, Professor Ejuxman Ejuks. He's a lecturer at the University of Calabar in Calabar, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our special guest, Alexander Vindman. So, Lieutenant Colonel, we were talking before the break about how Ukraine has enough will and skill to basically liberate its territory if given the weaponry and the aid it requires. So that's my question to you. We just learned this week that the U.S. will start training now Ukrainian forces here in the United States at Fort Sill on the use of Patriot air defense missiles later this month, about 100 Ukrainian troops to begin with. So I wanted to ask you how significant this development is and how confident you feel, particularly given the fact that a hardline isolationist Republican House of Representatives, and I say that because they are in the majority now, and many of them have expressed some skepticism about funding for Ukraine, saying they might try to block additional funding for Ukraine. What more needs to be done and how worried are you that that may be in jeopardy as a result of the Republican-led House of Representatives? Yeah, so first with the provision of additional capability, it's meaningful not necessarily for the system itself, the weapon itself, but it's meaningful for the signal it sends. One of the most sophisticated tools we have in our arsenal is this Patriot system. The fact that we're offering this Patriot system has now signaled that all this kind of rhetoric around the fact that, while well, the Ukrainians aren't capable of using it, it's too complex, they can't support it, they can't sustain it. Some of that looks like it's kind of starting to evaporate. We've also heard announcements of the provision of 50 Bradley fighting vehicles. Those are basically significant. It's not a tank, but it's a light tank, frankly. That means that we're not too far off from probably the provision of tanks, Western-made tanks that are far better than anything that the Russians have or that the Ukrainians currently have in their arsenal. And I think this means that you know we're going to slowly start creeping towards no artificial boundaries on systems. If you recall at the beginning of the war, of course, we were resistant to planes being offered, even Soviet era Warsaw Pact planes being provided to Ukraine. We were resistant to all sorts of different things. The only thing we could muster our courage to provide was some javelins and some stingers. We've blown so far past those kind of artificial limitations. And I think the Patriot missile battery being provided is a signal that the gloves are almost coming off. We're not there yet. I want to see tanks in the mix. I want to see advanced drones in the mix. I want to see planes in the mix. This is what the Ukrainians are entitled to for spilling their blood to defend the U.S.-led world order. They must get these capabilities. On the back end, we must help reconstruct them. We must help establish their military 
as a military power armed with Western equipment and a member of NATO to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So that's where we need to get to. That's the end state. With regard to the role that the Republican Party is likely to play, I'm slightly less concerned, maybe even more than slightly less concerned about the fact that there'll be huge impediments to continued support to Ukraine. First of all, one, they missed the boat on being able to obstruct support to Ukraine. $45.5 billion were passed in a legislation in December, and that's enough to fund a large number of efforts, probably through not quite the end of 2023, but deep into 2023, through the summer, I'd say. So those resources are at the Department of Defense disposal. In terms of what the Republicans are likely to do substantively, there'll probably be oversight roles and investigations about some things to do with Ukraine, the weapon systems going to Ukraine, accountability of weapon systems. But at the same time, we saw in the midterm election in November 2022, a general rejection of the most extreme candidates. And I think that's a warning to a lot of the more moderate Republicans, as small as that group is becoming. And because of that, we can't have high hopes for a standard fair Republican Party that's supportive of U.S. values, supportive of democracy, supportive of our allies, supportive of pushing back on an aggressive Russia. But we could have some faith based on just the numbers that margins are razor thin and there's a high probability that you could peel off some of those Republicans that have Ukrainian, Eastern European constituents to side with continued support for Ukraine. So we'll see how things develop. You know, we're just days into a Republican-controlled House, and we'll see which way they choose to pivot. Uh, traditional direction would probably be helpful because it may even drive the Biden administration to be a little bit more thoughtful in its support to Ukraine, or will they be obstructionists? And they'll have to pay for going against the interests of the American public, which still strongly backs the polling I saw. Still 65% support more arms to Ukraine, something close to 70 support additional sanctions and closer to the mid 70 support Ukraine in general. And the Republicans are mindful and they'll have to pay the consequences if they're not paying attention to what their constituents want. Let me turn to Tatiana for a question. Tatiana. If we look back at the battlefield, there are serious signs that Russia might have another wave of mobilization with as many as half a million people. In your opinion, what effect it would have on the battlefield and politically inside Russia? You know, the last mobilization didn't go so great for Russia. Some 600,000 military-aged males fled the country. And the estimates are mixed on how many people actually were mobilized. You know, maybe the best estimates are somewhere around 300,000, but potentially less Tens of thousands of those folks have already become casualties, killed or injured. Russia thinks that mobilizing a half a million may be enough to just throw human waves at Ukraine and liberate swathes of territory. That doesn't resonate with me. That strategy is going to inflict huge casualties on Russia with, frankly, unclear gains. They might make some small gains here and there, but it's not going to be sufficient force to either liberate all those annexed territories that Russia claims are now Russian territories. It's kind of this mirage of territorial gains that never materialized. It's certainly not anywhere close to what's required to subdue the whole country, which is still part of the Russian rhetoric in most corners. So we have to recognize that the best of Russia's military in terms of equipment, in terms of trained personnel has been destroyed. It is a shell of what it was before this war started. Throwing warm bodies 
into the meat grinder is not going to be sufficient. This is not the multi-million man army of World War II and the Battle of Stalingrad where you just pour in millions of troops in order to get your gains. They can't do that. They can't muster that kind of strength. So it's unclear what they're actually going to be able to accomplish. And meanwhile, the Ukrainians are gaining a huge amount of advanced equipment, making it even harder for the untrained Russians with their poor Soviet-era decades-old equipment to make gains. We shouldn't be dismissive. That could be, if it materializes a significant amount of force and a beat-up 1960s-era tank is still kind of a, a moving steel kind of coffin, but you throw enough of those forward, you might be able to make some gains, but it's not going to be what helps shift the momentum decisively in Russia's favor or absolutely will not be sufficient to help Russia win its political aims in that way. Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, as we continue on Russia, what about the U.S. and NATO-EU strategy with respect to countering Russia? How would you assess the sanctions regime? Of course, that's in lieu of boots on the ground. We're imposing sanctions and providing weaponry and aid to the Ukrainians who are fighting valiantly. How do you assess the sanctions? And what about Putin himself? At what point do you think he and his coterie will see that they aren't really gaining if in fact we can sustain the support that you say is so necessary? Because as we all know, there is much more at stake than just the sovereignty of Ukraine, but literally the existence and the survival of a liberal democratic order. So the sanctions regime is going to continue to have some sort of effect. It is not the massive effect that the administration had promised at the beginning of the war. It hasn't been thus far. It'll play out over the course of many more months. The Russian economy, which is based on oil revenues, significant part on oil revenues and agriculture actually has largely been unaffected. There's now some indicators that oil prices are likely to stay low, but sufficient to drive revenues towards Russia to support its war effort, to support the economy of the Russian Federation. I think maybe after this winter kind of starts to wind down, there'll be a bigger appetite because of their efforts underway to diversify oil and gas from other regions. There may be an appetite to inflict more sanctions on Russia on the areas of its budget that have allowed it to continue to generate huge revenues, like I said, oil and agriculture. I think the fact is, it doesn't seem like we necessarily have the stomach, the US and the EU to completely cut Russia off and prevent it from continuing to finance this war. That would mean basically blocking sanctions on financial transactions. It would mean blocking transactions on oil and gas trades. And it would mean blocking transactions on agriculture. I think you could frankly justify blocking transactions on swaths of the financial infrastructure of Russia, as well as oil and gas. Agriculture is a little bit harder because Russian and Ukrainian grains are essential to feeding the world. They are, in fact, the breadbasket for South Asia, Africa. Maybe in that regard to not amplify, magnify human suffering, that probably should be carved out, even though there are revenues that come from there. But there are still more that we can do. And we should absolutely do after the winter season, because all of us have weathered this winter quite well. Prices have normalized. There are not going to be people freezing in European capitals. So I think we're certainly fine there. With regards to Putin, you know, part of my contention on Endgame is that he may possibly hang on to Crimea and Crimea may play out not in a military sphere, but in a kind of a diplomatic sphere. That's a possibility. There's also a distinct possibility that Ukrainians 
have the wherewithal to liberate it. Putin could walk away from Ukraine, as disastrous as this war has been, and still survive. He couldn't do that because he still maintains a high degree of popularity, and he has not even begun to repress the population. There is an enormous capacity for Russia to use law enforcement, military, security forces to repress the Russian population. And he could, frankly, walk away from Russia and still survive for another couple of years, although I think that there's a possibility that he might find a way to exit in the next presidential run that he has in 2024. So I I just don't think that he's going away anytime soon. He has a lot of capacity to retain power, whether he's successful or ultimately fails in Ukraine. And he's almost certainly going to fail in Ukraine. Okay, well, when you say he's going to fail, you know, then what? In other words, how do you see this ending, so to speak? It's a big question. A lot of people have been contemplating that. If Ukraine continues to receive this support and increased military support from the United States, the West, and so forth, remain resilient against such adversity and war crimes, how does Russia, Putin himself, how long will he continue to carry on with and you know what about the reaction of of russians we know they're being gaslit with censorship that there's no free media and so forth but how much pressure would the pressure from both on the battleground and somehow internally could he somehow putin himself withdraw or is he going to just continue you know a grinding war for who knows how long no it's going to be the former for sure it's going to be a combination of internal pressure it's going to be the weight of sanctions and the impact on his popularity but i wouldn't overstate those it's mainly going to be the destruction of his military on the battlefields of ukraine on the plains of the donbass the bottom line is that he will continue to wage this war as long as he has the military capacity to do so and that probably doesn't mean the entire russian military has to be destroyed, but a significant portion of it that he then feels he's vulnerable to other potential threats. So I think that's going to happen by the end of the spring and summer. He's going to burn through his capacity to wage war against Ukraine. He's going to break his military against Ukraine. He thinks he could make gains. He's not going to. By that point, he's going to probably start to engage in negotiations and look for a way out. He's going to want to do that with retaining a land bridge to Crimea and Crimea. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. I think Crimea is a big question. I think certainly the Ukrainians could advance to a position where they could threaten Crimea and use advanced systems like HIMARS to target bases in Crimea. I think that's probably the least that's going to happen by late summer. But he's going to break his military on Crimea and then look for a way to get out. And he can do that because he does have an enormous capacity to propagandize his population, to claim that he's demilitarized Ukraine, to claim that he's denazified Ukraine, to repress the heck out of his population and throw anybody and everybody who criticizes him into camps. And that's really his going to be his only option because he'll have broken his military and he's not going to escalate up. Because if he were to escalate up, his only place to go would be to weapons of mass destruction. If he moved in that direction, he would be manifesting the one thing he wants to avoid, which is a direct threat to his regime. It's been made clear to him now that if he were to use weapons of mass destruction, that would be a game changer that would basically reshape some of the red lines that we have. There's a threat of NATO involvement now, and the threat of NATO involvement means crushing the Russian armed forces. He's very unlikely to escalate up. But there is that window when Crimea is under threat and he has to make a decision on whether to tuck tail and run away where he's going to be seriously contemplating what his options are. I ultimately think that self-preservation is going to guide him away from escalating into weapons of mass destruction and nuclear strikes. But that's going to be a dangerous period. And I blame 
in part our own administration for letting us get to that point because we've been so plotting and so slow and so reactive in providing Ukraine equipment to destroy the Russian military in a shorter order, maybe even before the end of this year, that was a viable option if we had provided more support. And we would have never really faced those critical challenges with regards to potential escalation. Turning to you, Tatiana, for the last question. Okay, so how would you assess the possibility of potentially Russia breaking up in different parts? From what I can hear, Ukrainian officials seem to be very open to this possibility. They assess it highly likely as compared to people in Washington. So, you know, it's interesting. In my doctoral dissertation, I researched and wrote about something called the UNGROUP that was established by Secretary Gates that was run by then later Secretary Condoleezza Rice when she was a staffer on the NSC. Their concern was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And in the late 80s, they settled on a policy of supporting the Kremlin to avoid the collapse of the Soviet Union, to make sure that there were not a bunch of loose nukes or additional states with nuclear capability emerging. I think this is a question that's live now, that the administration absolutely has to be looking at even the remote notion of the collapse of the Russian Federation. And hopefully they don't make the same mistakes that Secretary Gates and Condoleezza Rice made back then by suppressing support to places like Ukraine in favor of the Kremlin. That is particularly dangerous. If you recall the chicken Kiev speech, that emerged from that kind of thinking, that keeping the Kremlin responsible for the region is the safer play. Right now, we should recognize that we have very little control over the collapse of the Russian Federation if it were to occur. We're not the ones driving that. It's Putin's own actions and conducting this horrific war, this terrible war that's leading to the destruction of Ukraine in part, but also the fabric of the Russian Federation itself. I think we should be planning for it. I think there is something to regions of the Russian Federation maybe splintering off. The most dangerous area would probably be the North Caucasus in a place like Chechnya. I'm not sure if there's a basis on which to judge the fracturing of the Russian Federation. Historically, at one point, Tatarstan, the Tatarstan portion of the Russian Federation had a greater deal of autonomy, but these are peoples and populations that have been part of Russia, the Russian Empire, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I don't know how much I buy into this thesis. It's a possibility. It needs to be something we should plan for and mainly to be prepared for the repercussions because the U.S. government has little control of that. Frankly, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military has more control over the outcomes there than we do based on the fact that they're destroying the Russian military and so forth. I don't know if I would put too much stock yet in the collapse of the Russian Federation, but there are going to be enormous challenges in the years ahead and probably some fractures and maybe some breakaway regions. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is former National Security Director for Eastern Europe and Russia, senior advisor to Vote Vets, and author of Here, Right Matters. Colonel Vindman, thank you so much for your time and your terrific insights. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was a terrific conversation. I'm looking forward to it next time. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. Thanks to Tatiana Voroshko for joining me on the program. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.